Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Trans Podcast. I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, Technology Analyst. Steve, What's how up, you Ben? <laughs> I'm glad we're recording in this new format. It's going to be great. <laughs> this is really fun. It's so professional now. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel uh, at the end of Spark? We've been uh, about two weeks out of Spark now. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've actually... I really don't want this to be recorded, but uh, it, it, it's nice. It's nice that uh, it's like a breath of fresh air. Sure. I finally it's have like you know times during the day where I'm not doing anything. I'm like, this is nice. <laughs> you have room to breathe just a bit. Yeah, just just you know, screw around. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one thing that uh, you can't screw around with is uh, buying new graphics cards, buying new GPUs. Oh man! You and I were chatting about uh, the silicon sh- silicon shortage. Uh, once you. Uh, yeah, we've been blabbing more. about how hard it is to get uh, GPUs, um, you know, in previous episodes, and now um, regular CPU uh, manufacturers are having a tough time sourcing um, silicon for the aftermarket. And it's funny I say that aftermarket meaning um, that like like for the DIY computer builders and people right. who want to do upgrades, it's nearly impossible to get your hands on uh, the latest tech, uh, at least at MSRP. It's out there, but you know, the scalpers have it at like two, three times the price of what it's supposed to be sold at. Um, The cool thing is if you actually do want to get your hands on that stuff, it, this is like the one time ever, like the only time ever that uh, it's been possible to get a pre-built, uh, PC, sure. like like a already assembled PC for you with the latest hardware in it, like you know right. the latest 11th gen Intel processor or whatever the, the AMD Ryzen um, or you know the latest GPU like the RTX 30 series actually at MSRP and it actually be cost less than building the computer yourself. Right. It's a right. weird time we're in right now, and it's it's funny how the silicon shortage is favoring the oems as it's supposed to do you know the oems get the the new stuff first uh that's the way it's supposed to be and the aftermarket for once in pc building is actually suffering i mean i'm sure it (laughs) suffered before but it's 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 the first time ever that a pre-built actually costs less um to buy than you know building it yourself which has always been the mantra of like the diy elitist anyway i didn't need to get into that um but about the silicon shortage, um, what I wanted to talk about was, you know, in the, the silicon's also going to automobile uh, automobile manufacturers right. like Ford and stuff. So they need these to make these computer chips for their engine control units and their transmission control units because, you know, everything's run by computers these days. Uh, so auto manufacturers need silicon, too. Um but what's crazy is, you know, I saw a video on YouTube recently that was kind of like backpedaling on a video they put out exactly a year ago saying that, you know, if you need computer components, buy it now right. because we're not going to be able to get them from China <laughs> in the future. Now they've got the video that came out like just a few days ago saying that, uh, okay, we were wrong, but we were still kind of right <laughs> because you can't get the stuff now, but it's not because it's not coming out of China. It's coming out of China. Sure. It's just going to OEMs first. Right. And right. yeah, we were right. You still can't get it right now. So <laughs> aren't you glad you bought it back then? Right. Um, but anyway, it was making me think more about the silicon shortage. 
And sure, like, you know, prices are going sky high on the aftermarket, um, way higher than MSRP for like GPUs and whatnot. Um, but who else uses silicon? Right. And, you know, being a huge watch snob that I am for like <laughs> mechanical high end mechanical watches, um, a lot of watch manufacturers have shifted over the past few years from using specialty alloys sure. in their mainsprings and hairsprings. Um, these specialty alloys being relatively ferromagnetic, relatively anti-magnetic right. um, because magnets are really bad for watches and that electronics are all around us today. And if, if it's electronic, um, there's a magnetic field associated sure. with and it almost works. most of the time. Right. And that's magnetic. Mechanical watches don't like magnetic fields because of their metallic springs. If sure. they get magnetically charged, particles get attracted to each other. When particles get attracted to each other, you know, the springiness doesn't work <laughs> as well. So the your timing, your isochronism yeah. gets way off. I don't mean, I didn't mean to go yeah. in that deep. I like the technical term, years. the uh, springiness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the spring constant. That's it. Right. Um, but over the past few years, Mechanical watch manufacturers have pivoted from these specialty alloys to silicon because it is it's anti-magnetic. Right, right. Um, and you can wear a mechanical watch with a silicon hairspring and put it right next to like a one Tesla permanent magnet <laughs> and it won't affect the timing at all, uh, which is really cool. And, you know, a couple of years ago when it came out, it was slowly catching on. Like sure. I think Omega was one of the first people to adopt it. And then over the years eventually rolex bought into it and if rolex buys into it usually the market's going that right, way right. in watch the watch market um but you know nobody ever thought of silicon as being like a precious metal because like when you think high-end watches you think oh you know you know where's where's the old man flexing with a gold <laughs> rolex um but it's crazy now that this pandemic bringing on this huge silicon shortage has actually made the value of watches, which, you know, the pandemic also came with like an economic downturn. You know, some people may have been affected by it. Uh, and yet a luxury good is skyrocketing in price. The demand is higher than ever. Um, the prices are higher than ever. And it's probably due to the silicon uh, being used in hairsprings now and effectively taking something that was not a luxury good or a precious metal and turning it into a precious material. Yeah, that's fascinating that, uh, you know, the, as, as big as the electronics market is, you know, broad spectrum, right? So just computer components to industry goods to uh, other consumer goods, the trickle on effect from the raw material of silicon going bad or, you know, being chewed up and the demand going way, way past anything anyone forecasted. That was one of the interesting things that uh, the the video brought up is, yeah, these uh, computer electronic manufacturers had a forecast. Obviously, yep. they looked at, you know, some level of escalation because they know uh, every other generation of cards, um, there's more demand. Um, and, it, and, of course, uh, automobile demand and this had a certain level of forecast. When you far exceed that level of forecast and the demand is this high, uh, it's very fascinating. And, you know, the idea of why the demand was so high, you know, sure, the so disruption of supply chain was definitely there, but there's also just more people using those goods and yeah. wanting those goods. You know, 
it, the art of the video also mentioned like the you know um, crypto mining yeah that is a factor but that's not the only factor there's all just Significant, oh, yeah. significant demand across the board on all the sectors. What yeah, you it's like a lot. A lot of gamers point fing- the finger right. at, uh, <laughs> at, at like miners being like, you know, crypto miners right. are the reason why you can't get a GPU. Right. It's like no, we're all the reason why <laughs> you can't get a G- the latest GPU right. right now. The fact that you know so many people around the world, not just in the U.S., are working from home. Yeah. And, you know, the they're dusting off they, a year ago. They had to dust off the 10 year old e-machine computer <laughs> to open up some Excel spreadsheets off of the, your job's VPN. And yep. you find out, wow, this hardware's not up to snuff. I need a new computer or yeah. I need to upgrade this computer. Everybody, literally everybody is buying electronics. So, yeah, there's going to be a, a materials shortage. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's a material shortage. Like the industry's making the stuff yeah. have not had a pr- problem pivoting from one product to another. We've watched over the last year how beautiful all industries have been pivoting their product lines. But at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much matter. <laughs> the the only fond memory of the early pandemic I have is when my daughter, who was five at the time, uh, in kindergarten, got uh, shipped home and said, we're going to work from home the rest of the kindergarten year. Great, let's figure this out. She's using my desktop to log into her class remotely and using this giant mouse and giant monitor. I was like, well, this is going to suck. <laughs> so Yeah, it's another thing just proving the point. Your, yeah, your daughter's yeah. how old? She's six now, but uh, five. She's six years old. Yeah. And she was five at the beginning of the pandemic. Right. And now she needed she had a computer. A, she had a full-blown computer. Oh, she, she had her very yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but you guys bought her her yes, first yes, computer at like yeah. five or six years yeah. old. I didn't have my first computer until <laughs> I was like 15. That's right. Over the summer, I was concerned. Probably that, not even. Uh, it was probably like 17. I was worried that uh, the school wouldn't hand out Chromebooks uh, in our county. So I bought a, a laptop for her, uh, which she does use for uh, like our church activities. But yeah, at six years old, she has her own personal laptop, which... I found out the hard way about uh, fedding, setting family predi- uh, permissions and basically my own IT infrastructure for all these new <laughs> logins that I create. And oh God, I just went we don't after get into, uh, <laughs> We don't need to get into uh, the demand for materials because that makes you think of additive, and we don't need to get into uh, the need that uh, the, the first investment before investing in any of the uh, transformative technologies in the manufacturing industry, get an IT department. <laughs> we'll then talk- there's going to be demand for IT people because now every home is going to need an IT department. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on that maybe the next episode. Uh, let's jump into some articles, Steve. I, got, I found a really good one about um, how to assess the value of a robot uh, investment. So the idea, okay. you know, we were talking about, you know, how important automation is and it's all the full spectrum of automation, right? So you could use conveyors, you could use robotic arms, even robot process automation for software and, you know, back office type environment. Uh, But the idea that uh, this article from Automation World talks about is uh, uh, avoiding some of the, say, misnomers of going super cheap, right? So the idea of getting a quick return on investment, that's a a solid, that's the foundation of running a good business. Make sure you get return on profit or a profitable return on something that you invest on. But the idea of going super, super cheap could be a problem. So uh, they look at the total cost of ownership uh, and I'll read a couple of quotes here. So the less expensive robots may not provide the necessary capabilities in terms of throughput, payload or reach where higher quality ones will. So the idea that 
you know, buying the consumer grade robot that you and I have for the test bed may not fit in industrial space, right? We are moving pieces of Delrin uh, from, you know, one side of the table to the other, yeah. checking uh, positional accuracy. In the end, you know, to be honest, making sure we can get the data off those pieces of assets and trying to simulate those uh, in the future. But if I'm running that 24-7, or okay, maybe eight hours a day for five days a week, that's going to put a lot of wear and tear. And that's where yeah. you look at, you know, different, say, tiers of automation equipment. That, that's what you're paying for when you buy, like, an industrial right. robot. Because, right. like, I remember I remember showing uh, our robot to uh, Monir, Monir right. Halu from yeah. uh, NIST. And he was like, dude, look at this. I was like, dude, look at this thing, man. <laughs> like, the uh, look at the spec sheet. It matches, you know, the same robot that you could get from UR, Fanuc, yeah. KUKA, name name an industrial brand. Right. And he was just like, yeah, it does right now. But <laughs> put it in a, in a manufacturing environment for a week. <laughs> it's going to break. He wasn't like, wait for it to break. Yeah, it's going, it's going to, break. to break. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's, gonna, it's, it's going to break. Between the usage and the different environment. Um, so, I mean, most subtractive or most f- factories I go in, there's always... Con- I wouldn't say like contaminants in the air, but you got the smell of, you know, cutting fluid. If it's an assembly, you could have some welding going on somewhere else. All that it migrates into the joint somehow. And yeah. it's just going to keep wearing it down. Well, uh, I mean, think, think, think about the difference in like, you know, uh, um, a Corvette racing right, Corvette right. versus, you know, the Corvette down the road from you. That's <laughs> yeah. driven by the 70 year old man who only right. takes it out on Sunday and never goes over 40 miles an hour and always keeps it under 2000 RPM. That Corvette's going to last forever. Right. The right. one that went to the 24 hours of Daytona <laughs> will be lucky to make it 24 hours. It's going to limp home, you know, because yeah. it, 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 it's under more load. And one of the other core elements that uh, the article talks about is, uh, but sacrificing core capability, core capability is a bad way to save money. Any type of robot that fails to meet all the core companies will always end up costing more in the long run. And that's a that's a really interesting idea of, hey, I have this use case. Let me get this robot into this use case versus I have this factory that has a bunch of potential use cases. And, you know, the, the idea of um, understanding the life of a robot and what to do when, say, this small project or end of life of this project and then transitioning the robot to do other things. You know, that's something we talked about in the uh, past episodes about, you know, flipping the robot into doing multiple things in the, in the life of a robot. You know, once you've paid, you know, the hundred thousand dollars or $200,000 that the robot uh, costs, including the end of arm tooling and some of the, you know, the uh, uh, controller packaging, how do you continue harvesting that value if the machine is still working and if still the soft and the controllers are still, uh, up to date and things like that. So I think this is a really good look at. You don't just think of one use case; think of a series of use cases that this might be applicable for, and you could either replicate that scenario or think of uh, transitioning that robot to other scenarios. Uh, and one other side note: you know, we, uh, I'm the liaison for the automation and manufacturing committee uh, that AMT hosts, and we talked about mobility um, in the factory Ford specifically. And one interesting use case is that's growing in popularity is adding a robotic arm to a mobile platform. Uh, so I found that very, very interesting where, you know, IMTS 2018, we saw a lot of robotic arm on linear slides, you know, sliding back and forth along the, yeah. the booth, picking up different things and sliding back. We've seen a bunch of implementations where it's on the ceiling, so it's not tying up uh, floor space. The next iteration is put it on a ro- mobile platform. And you don't need rails. It just goes wherever it wants. It does the task and goes back to charge. And you know, there's obviously a ton of flaw or uh, 
problems that could occur. You got to charge it. You got payload capability and balancing all that stuff. But it's a very fascinating look at uh, a, a more flexible environment and, uh, you know, being able to arrange your facility how you want. So I thought it was a really good article from Automation World. For sure. Steve, take it away, man. You talk about uh, laser-assisted tape winding? Laser-assisted tape winding. So I thought yeah. this video, or not video, <laughs> this article was really fun, and I learned a lot from it, and I probably need to reread it because I'm sure I missed a lot. <laughs> but um, one of my favorite technologies uh, in the manufacturing industry, and sadly, I'll admit, it is not a transformative technology, but one of my favorite technologies is fiber tape, fiber tape and toe placement. Right. Um, it's it's fascinating it's incredible it's really fancy and uh because i'm attracted to all things expensive it is very expensive uh, <laughs> those machines are not cheap and there's very few of them even in the u.s sure um but uh it's less fancy little brother or maybe older brother actually sure. is tape winding right. technology and this article was really cool and eye-opening because this article is essentially it it's it, it it was titled um, The Challenges of Laser-Assisted Tape Winding yep. um, with thermo uh, Thermoplastic Composites. Mm -hmm. But it was really, it's a really good article and just like everything you need to know on tape winding. Okay, cool. And because, you know, I, I talk about in the tech report that, uh, you know, back at the office, I have this um, from my my middle school years of paintballing. I have a, a carbon fiber um, oh. a carbon fiber, high pressure air tank. Yeah. And I always assumed I knew it wasn't made using fiber placement or else it would be way more expensive than what I paid for it, which was expensive. Um, but, uh, I always thought it was made on a carbon loom, sure. a carbon fiber loom. Right. And reading this article made me realize, and I remember what the tank looks like, mm -hmm. though I haven't seen it in a while, but it is back at the office. Um, it was cool because I was like, oh, man, this wasn't made on a loom. Yeah. This was made using tape winding. Cool. And it was just it was, it was just a fun article. It was a very informative article. And it was uh, a new technology that I learned about that isn't necessarily new. It's been around. I just didn't know. It's new to me. And that's yep. that's fun and just as exciting as a new technology to everybody. Yeah. And I, I do like the idea of, uh, you know, being explored like new materials or, you know, we, we have talked about new materials in the past also. And I really a big fan of winding and your application of, you know, it's high pressure vessel that's made out of uh, that material versus like the one I have is probably made out of steel and yeah. running around the field, you know, obviously we're just paintballing. Right. But the amount of weight reduction is incredible <laughs> and it's so much easier and so much uh, user friendly to go to something that lightweight. And it's a, uh, it's a good experiment of, the advantages of going to something more uh, progressive. Uh, on yeah, light selection. composite, lightweighting, and it's and it's crazy to think that I bought that thing in uh, middle school, which <laughs> a was a long years time ago. ago. <laughs> Seems like a thousand years ago, and we're still talking about like you know carbon fiber right. manufacturing today. Yeah, now more of like you know additive manufacturing with carbon fiber, but it, it's. You know, carbon fiber still uh, is actually really old, as relevant yeah. as it is and as popular as it is and as, uh, you know, sexy as it is seeing it on like a supercar, whether it's, you know, your standard woven pre-preg yeah. carbon fiber yeah. or it's like on a McLaren, which uses a lot of uh, forged carbon fiber. Uh, it's it's still a really cool material. And I just it's amazing to me how old it is. But then again, 
if, if you want to dunk on carbon fiber, another really old material that is only now becoming like more popular, Inconel. I can't uh, yeah, believe yeah. Inconel came out in the 60s and only now we're figuring out like, <laughs> oh, we can actually work with this now. Yeah. Manufacturing technologies have come so far that, yeah. you know, it, you, don't, you don't have to be, uh, you know, Sandvik or Boeing to actually work <laughs> with this stuff anymore. Yeah, there's two layers to that. One is the, uh, the uh, composites, uh, the carbon fiber and uh, the different composites that you use in aerospace. You know, the, my first kind of introduction to that was learning about the B1 uh, no, B2 bomber that had a lot of carbon uh, fiber and composites uh, into the uh, skin. And then back at Eden, uh, our last project, Rolls-Royce, had a, a very, very specific cost for adding anchor points in their composite um, uh, bypass shell, bypass um, tube on their engine. So I found, I found it very interesting that they fully understood the cost of, if I run this duct system, I have to anchor it to the, the bypass. I need to embed this... Um, uh, this piece of metal that you could attach a screw through instead of screwing right into the composite, right? So yeah. they, they fully understand the cost of drilling it out, adding and gluing this uh, basically stud that you can attach to. And as every time you added a new anchor point, the cost just kept rolling and rolling up. So I very found that very fascinating that they fully understood this at, the, at that point that, you know, uh, in the design phase to minimize cost, they it was a canned cost for every time you added that point. Is, is there a specific term for that, like, anchor point in the composite or in the composite? I'm sure there is. It's a uh, – not stud. Um, it's uh, – so what, the, the issue is uh, uh, distributing the load into the composite. Yeah. Uh, the screwing right into it doesn't work, so you have to put uh, some kind of load-bearing uh, attachment point. So it's a load-bearing uh, – stud or something like that there's probably a different there's a bunch of different references they stuff. actually do a similar process in watchmaking no joke um that so so in in mechanical watch you know all of your springs and gears which power the watch and yeah. well the springs power the watch and the gears just deliver the power to tell you the time um but all of that stuff is held together with these plates and yeah. you know the main plate is called the base plate sure. and usually those uh plates are made out of brass right. you know very soft material um or you know in some cases like the germans they like to use german silver which sure. fun fact german silver is neither german or <laughs> silver <laughs> it, it, it's actually an, another tech report article gets into that and that's a, the copper nickel alloy uh, is german silver but anyway um you know, those are typically soft metals. Sure. Um, br brass is definitely a soft metal. And when a lot of watch manufacturers, it, they love thinking ahead right. in terms of serviceability and maintenance. Like Rolex is all, what's funny about Rolex is I swear to God, Rolex hates their customers, <laughs> but they love their service people. Yeah. Like, yeah. like when a customer, when their watch stops working and they take it back to a watch store and be like, Oh, the battery's dead because they think it has a computer chip and yeah. a battery in it. Um, and that's the typical Rolex buyer for you. Um, the, the Rolex engineers, their movements to be like an absolute dream come true to work on. Sure. And in those like soft metal plates that things are bolted to literally screwed down into, um, they actually embed a, a anchor point or a right. stud that you're talking about in the French word. Well, the French language word that these Swiss people use, I am probably butchering. It, it's called a chanton, okay. I think, or yeah. chanton. Sure. Um, and it's basically, uh, 
like like you know how on like some um uh ar platform rifle mm -hmm. handguard systems right. the um uh, the QD sling swivel right, right. mounting point. Yes. You know, sleeve, the, the handguard is usually made out of aluminum, but right. aluminum is soft. And by entering this thing in and out and then right. removing a sling and entering the sling back in, you can wear down that aluminum. Right. So instead they'll use like an anchor point made out of steel embedded in that aluminum. Yeah. And it's yeah. a same, similar concept. Yeah. And yeah. So the idea I just of wanted to know if there was a, a, a term for it other than what the French watchmakers use. I'm sure there is. We just, Attachment point. We'll call it an anchor point anchor for point. now. Yeah, and also your comment about uh, using uh, nickel-based alloys. You know, uh, so aerospace, of course, have been using it for a long time because of their high temperature applications. Right, it's always used on jet engines a lot. So we use um, Inconel six twenty five, Inconel seven eighteen. Yeah. If you want something high strength at high temperature, that's that you can age. Um, and and then you got the uh, other alloys where you add like cobalt, so you get some abrasion resistance. And and it is fascinating that the evolution of some of those materials in terms of more market acceptance. Um, you know, we started experimenting with L605, uh, let's say like 15 years ago, by experimenting in our first integration to a product that we sent to a customer, and then that we started learning how to machine. So, you know, the idea of these mature materials getting more acceptance into other industries, and then they're learning all this tribal knowledge again about how to machine it. Um, yeah, and it is fairly difficult to machine. Like, do you want to machine the uh, anneal condition, or do you want an age condition depending on the surface finish? Uh, are you going to get chatter? What type of uh, cutters do you want? It's there's a lot of nuances that are learned, um, and the manufacturers learning this on the fly. So that's uh, you know, it's great. It's, sure. a, it's a very challenging material. Yeah. And it's awesome that it's trickling. It's it's made its way to the consumer yeah. aftermarket. Yeah, like if, if if it's you know if that's your thing. If you're a Honda Civic owner, you can actually <laughs> buy an Inconel exhaust system for your Civic. Yeah, I remember. It's absurd, but it exists. One of the stage three modifications for my Golf <laughs> was a Inconel 625 uh, manifold. No way! Yeah. This was uh, back in 2005. Uh, what? I didn't buy that. No, that was it. Was really pricey. I went cheap, and that had to be five figures. And uh, the motor didn't last too long after I modified with this uh, cheaper uh, version. So. <laughs> Rest, rest in peace, are. golf. R.I.P. Right. Steve, where can they find more info about us? They can't find us at our old news <laughs> website anymore. We're phasing that one out. Just like we phased out Zoom. <laughs> but uh, um, they can find us at amtonline.org. I don't know the actual like subscribe <laughs> link yet, but I'm sure if you go to amtonline.org, there's somewhere you can click for news, and then you'll be able to find us there. We'll awesome, throw it in Steve. the link below. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye, everybody.